we're going to reach for our copies of God's Word. If you need one, there's a cart down the center aisle with some Bibles on it. Stand up and grab one if you need one. And we're going to turn first of all to our New Testament reading, which is in Revelation. Revelation 18.90, or no, 18.90. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 18.90. Um, but we're actually going to be Revelation in Revelation 14. Just read a, a small section from this uh, vision of the, that the Apostle John received, this heavenly uh, vision. Um, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 13. <clears throat> in this section, we get a glimpse of the fate of those, both the fate of those who were seduced by Babylon, the prostitute, uh, who in, in Revelation, you may know, is a, is a symbol of the world city that is luring and seducing and drawing people into uh, her perversions and uh, away from the Lord. And so we get a vision here of the fate of those who uh, follow Babylon and then we also get a glimpse of the fate, the destiny of those who uh, hold fast to the witness of Jesus Christ. And so let's uh, hear this portion of God's word, Revelation 14, 8 through 13. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. So uh, could you hear the contrast there? We're told of the, the wicked who are seduced by Babylon the great. Um, that in part of their, of their punishment is that they will not rest day or night forever and ever. But to those who hold fast to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when they die and they enter their reward, the first thing that is said about it is that they cease from, they rest from their labors. And I hope you can see there that's part of that Sabbath rest that has been promised uh, to the people of God. And we're going to continue looking at the fourth commandment this morning. And, and so I'd like to read that to you uh, again now. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And this is God's holy word. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, 
you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your eternally enduring word. As Peter tells us in his first epistle, that it is, that is, your word is that incorruptible seed by which we have been born again. And so we need the seed of your word to be sown into our hearts, that it might spring up to newness of life. And Father, may our hearts be prepared by you to be fertile ground uh, where your seed is, is uh, received and blossoms. And Lord, may we have faith by your power and grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to take one more sermon. Um, in the last week's sermon and this week's sermon, I'm answering objections to uh, the assertion that the fourth commandment is a, an enduring moral obligation for the Christian. But I would like to acknowledge that this topic is, it, it, this is a topic about which faithful Christians can disagree. And I recognize that. Right? Not, not all Christians come to the same conclusion about this. Um, but yet, I would encourage you to recognize that all churches that seek to be faithful to the Word of God are, are going to insist that the members of their church not neglect the gathering together of the church for worship, corporate worship, weekly. And so our church, we require members to affirm that they believe them, they themselves believe that they ought to faithfully participate in this church's worship in service. But much like other secondary doctrinal matters, like we could talk about covenantal household baptism or, or eschatology, some of these less central matters to the gospel, um, in those things we don't require our members to vow for example, that they will observe uh, the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath in the way that it is summarized in our doctrinal statement, the Confession of Faith. So if you are a member here, and, but you forsake gathering with the church, for we will seek you out. But I, I'm not the Sabbath police. I don't see myself as the Sabbath police who should go about investigating your lives to see what you do with the rest of the day. However, this is my opportunity to convince you that the command to rest one day in seven, to gather with the church to worship the Lord, and to have fellowship with his people, to get a foretaste of the blessings of the kingdom of God, that that is a command that has not been abolished. And more than that, I want to do more than that. I want you to see along, as J.C. Ryle once said it, the Sabbath is not a yoke, but a blessing. It's not a burden, it's a mercy. It is not a hard, wearisome requirement, but a public benefit. It is one which carries with it its own reward. It is good for man's body and mind. It is good for nations. It is good for souls. And it will change your life. 
promise you that. So the two parts of the sermon this morning will be, number one, to finish answering objections against the, the assertion that the fourth commandment is an enduring moral obligations that Christians should observe. The second part of the sermon will be to stir up in you delight in the gift and the blessing of Sabbath rest. In last week's sermon, I attempted to prove that the fourth commandment is its not one of the ceremonial laws regulating the temple of the old covenant system. Those laws, as I pointed out, foreshadowed the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so with his coming as the true priest, the true sacrifice, the true temple builder, those laws have not been abolished, they've been changed. I showed you that from Hebrews. Uh, the, the command, though, for Sabbath rest, one day out of seven, is given not among the ceremonial laws in the book of Leviticus. Where is it given? It's given at the very heart of the moral law of the Ten Commandments, which happens to be the law that God tells us in his word that his spirit will write upon the hearts of believers. This fourth commandment, it, we notice it's the last of the first four uh, on, in what is often called the first table of the law. And, and those first four commandments, they teach us how it is, what it looks like to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and all of our strength. And so the conclusion that I see us being drawn to based on that is that we are to rest on the Sabbath day to express that we love God above everything else. Not much of the... Now, there is a lot of confusion surrounding this in the church um, uh, in recent generations concerning the fourth commandment. It, It stems from the fact that we fail to recognize, Christians often fail to recognize that there were other ceremonial Sabbath days that are commanded for the, the old covenant people they were commanded to observe in the book of Leviticus. So I'd ask you to turn with me to Leviticus 23. Now this is probably the dustiest section of your Bible, so I might hear, I don't have any WD-40 with me, but... Um, We'll see if your Bible squeaks when you open to Leviticus 23. And what we see here uh, right off the bat is the chapter begins. This is in the midst of of Moses, the the Lord giving the regulations for temple worship uh, to Moses. And Moses is delivering it to the people here. And he begins chapter 24, or 23, excuse me, uh, by repeating, you notice, a shortened version of, of the fourth commandment in verses 1 through 3. And then the next thing he does is Moses goes on and he says, now these are the laws concerning the feasts there in verse 4. And he and the rest of the chapter is spent describing the four great feasts that were on the Hebrew calendar. And I want you to notice that the fourth commandment that is repeated in verses 1 through 3 is not one of the feasts that are described in the rest of the chapter. So there is the Sabbath day, the moral law of the fourth commandment, and then there are laws concerning the feasts, the festivals. Okay, Those are two distinct things here. First, uh, the first feast that is described is the feast of Passover and the the feast of unleavened bread that follows it. And I want you to notice, just real briefly, look there in verses 7 and 8, 
that on both the first day and the seventh day of the feast, there was to be a holy convocation. Now, uh, convocation, not a word we use very often. It literally means a calling together. It is a, it is a gathering of the people of God. It's what we're doing right now. This is a holy convocation. And you see there, the command then is given, you shall do no customary work on it. In other words, you must Shabbat. That's the Hebrew word for Sabbath. You, you must rest. You must cease from your labors. So the first day, the seventh day of that feast were Sabbath days. Now, uh, notice the same thing in the description of the next feast, the Feast of Firstfruits and Pentecost uh, in verses 9 through 21. There was a prescribed Sabbath rest for a worship gathering, and it's built into this feast as well. And you can see that in verse 21. Now, if you do the math um, of the, there, you shall count uh, uh, 50, uh, 49 weeks uh, the, the date of the end of the feast, and then on the 50th day. If you do all that math, you'll, you'll come to see that the, the, the Sabbath rest commanded in verse 21, it fell on the first day of the week. Next, there is the description of the Feast of Trumpets. There in verses 24 through 25. And you notice this too was a prescribed day of Sabbath rest for the people of God to gather for worship. It's a Sabbath. And next we see in verses 27 through 32 that the tenth day of the seventh month was the day of atonement. And it too is described as a day of Sabbath rest in which no customary work was to be done. Now the final feast um, described in verses 34 through 43 is the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you look there at verses 35 and 36, you will see that both the first day and the eighth day were to be set aside for Sabbath rest. No customary work was to be done, and it was for a holy convocation, a gathering together of the people of God. So now I want you to take note of what Moses says in verses 37 through 38. In verses 37 through 38, he summarizes now all of the things that the people are called to do during these four feasts. And pay careful attention to the language. Uh, Verses 37 through 38. These are the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to to offer an offering made by fire, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your free will offerings. So just notice here that included in the activities of these feasts are one, holy convocations, burnt offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, which uh, that, that is, if you read back about the the sacrifices that are being referred to here, they're food offerings. So there are food and drink offerings. These are part of the, these feasts. And there are Sabbaths, plural. You see that? Built into these feasts were special days that are called here the Lord's Sabbaths, plural. Okay. Now turn with me to Colossians. Oh, you can turn there. I also have it for you overhead. It might, I should have made that bigger. Sorry. Um, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 
happening. Here's where the confusion co- comes in because of some, uh, because of Paul's what Paul says, here, and it's it's often misunderstood what he's talking. If we can identify it based on what we just read from Leviticus 23. Pay attention to Paul, the language that Paul uses here so that you can see what Paul is referring to. He says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, plural, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Paul is talking here about the great feasts of the Old Testament calendar. And we see that because of the language that it echoes from Leviticus 23. The, the feasts, those feasts, you noticed, were marked off by moons. The new moon. So that's how the Jews kept their calendar. Each new moon began a new month. And each f- festival was dated based on its location on the calendar, the Jewish calendar, or the Jewish moon, right? And Paul makes reference to new moons here. Uh, the feasts of those feasts, as I pointed out to you earlier, had uh, offerings, burnt offerings, uh, sacrifices, and which are referred to here, talks about and drink offerings. That's Paul's allusion to the those uh, those meat offerings and the drink offerings that were part of the festivals. And all of this to, to say that what Paul is, uh, oh, and he also mentions Sabbaths, plural, which again echoes the language of Leviticus 23.38, where we heard the Lord describe those festivals and the, the Sabbaths in them as the Sabbaths of the Lord. So the point here being that the, based on the, Paul's own language, we see that he's not referring to the moral law of the Sabbath day. He's talking about the ceremonial laws of the festivals that are described in Leviticus 23. Those feasts foreshadowed the work of Jesus Christ. They have been fulfilled in him, so now they are truly days and festivals and new moons that are the Christian can be indifferent about. In fact, that's the word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 14 when he refers to things indifferent. And he, he suggests there that, that the Christians who still observe these days, these festivals, that they are, their faith is weaker than those who are mature, who recognize their faith is underformed. They, they don't see how Christ has fulfilled those festivals, and so they think that they still need to keep those festivals when actually they don't because why? Jesus is our Passover lamb. So we don't need to observe Passover. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We don't keep the feast of first fruits anymore. Uh, on the day of the resurrection, of Jesus being raised from the dead, that victorious trumpet blast sounded forth once and for all. So we don't keep the Feast of Trumpets anymore. We don't keep the Feast of Tabernacles because Jesus Christ is our atoning God who has tabernacled among us and has fulfilled all of the substance. He is the substance of these feasts. But the feasts are something different we've seen than the Sabbath rest of the fourth commandment because, again, the Sabbath rest of the fourth commandment is pointing us to 
the promised land. It's pointing us to the rest that we will enter into and enjoy eternally only after God's enemies and our enemies and uh, the enemies of the kingdom of God have been defeated and put under the feet of Jesus Christ. That work, we, that's the work that we've been enlisted into. That work is not yet finished. That work goes on until Jesus' second coming. And so, as Revelation 14.13 indicates, it's only when we die and we enter heaven do we as Christians finally rest from our labors. Today, we have labor to do. That was one of the points of last week. Uh, it, it follows then that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. If we're called to work today, on behalf of Christ, on behalf of his kingdom, we're also called to rest today from those labors uh, symbolizing, that rest symbolizing uh, the future land of promise that we will enter into. But there is another objection that gets raised. How can Christians say they observe the Sabbath day when they worship on the first day of the week rather than the seventh day of the week. And some people will say, the Sabbath day is Saturday. And to that I say, says who? Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if you look at the fourth commandment, go back uh, to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, and look at the fourth commandment. The only thing, it, God blessed and hallowed not the seventh day. He blessed and he hallowed the Sabbath day. There's a difference. And the only thing that is commanded there is, the, is this pattern. The pattern of six days of work and one day of rest. That hasn't changed. That's still the, the pattern of the life of the believer if you look at the Sabbaths of the feast in Leviticus 23, I, maybe you noticed that as I was pointing those out to you earlier, that the Sabbaths in the feasts, those days of rest, most often fell on the first day of the week, didn't they? The first day of the week. Because again, those feasts are pointing us forward to the work of Jesus Christ and the things that he would do when he came. And his work would have been all for nothing if he did not rise again from the dead on the first day of the week. And we, we see, when we look at the New Testament, is that after his resurrection on the first day of the week, Jesus and his disciples, they changed the day, the day for rest and the day for worship to the first day of the week. Now, we can see this from a passage like John chapter 20, uh, verse 19 and verse 26, which I have for you overhead if you want to look at it there, um, where we see that John, when he writes his gospel, carefully points out to us that it was on the first day of the week while the disciples were gathered together that Jesus appeared to them. And then you look there at verse 26, and you'll see that again, John points out that Jesus didn't appear again to his disciples until eight days later. Now, if you count days like a Jew, 
then you would understand that what that is what that means is that Jesus the next time Jesus met with them was on the first day of the next week. And so John goes out of his way to point out that it was on the first day of the week that Jesus met with his disciples after the resurrection. Now, if you look then at Acts chapter 20 uh, verse 7 Uh, we see there um, that the apostles had taught the church to gather for worship on the first day of the week. It says there, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now next, uh, we could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, uh, where Paul commands the church in Corinth to take a special offering on the first day of the week. Uh, clearly, this was the day that he commanded them to gather for worship. And note also there in verse 1 how he not only gave the same command to the churches of Galatia, or to the churches in Corinth, but he gave the same command to the churches in Galatia. And he had the authority to do that. Why? Because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so what he taught by direct command or by example that the Christians were called to imitate, um, he, he had the authority to do that. You might remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. The apostles had the authority to command such things in keeping with the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what about the day of Pentecost? You think about the great importance of the day of Pentecost uh, that's recorded in Acts chapter 2 and how, uh, if again, do the math based on Leviticus chapter 23 that the Feast of First Fruits, uh, from the end of the Feast of First Fruits uh, to the to the day of Pentecost was 50 days. And that means the day of Pentecost, after Jesus rose again from the dead, was on what day of the week? The first day of the week. And what happened, young people? What happened on that day of Pentecost? Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church on the first day of the week. And this, this New Testament evidence is why our church fathers have unanimously understood Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 to be a reference to the first day of the week. Now, John doesn't use here, uh, as he speaks about the day on which he received this revelation, he doesn't use the word first day of the week. He simply says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And the church un- has understood uh, from, from the very beginning that the first day of the week, it must have been the first day of the week. That's the Lord's day. That's the day on which Jesus began his work in the church by his Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath day was identified as the Lord's day, as you might, as you might suspect, right? Um, Isaiah 15. Mike keeps cutting out, doesn't it? Am I doing something? I don't know if I can get some help with that. But in Isaiah 58, 13, 
Uh, the Lord calls the Sabbath day, I underline those for you overhead, he calls the Sabbath day my holy day. He, he calls it the holy day of the Lord. Now the Lord owns all the other six days, doesn't he? But this one is special to him. He made it for a special purpose. And I, be, I believe, uh, and many others with me, believe that when we, there is a prophecy in the Old Testament that indicates, that speaks of the, the change of the Lord's day from the seventh day to the first day. Now, I think the, the, uh, the symbolism of the Sabbath days in the feasts of Leviticus 23 is an evidence for that. The fir- the, most of the Sabbath rests were on fr- the first day of the week or the eighth day, which is also the first day of the next week, right? Um, <clears throat> but if you look at, we'll look at this together, Psalm 118, uh, verses 22 through 24, I believe here the Lord foretold that the, the day of the, the Lord's day, the, the day of the week, would be changed after a significant event took place. And we read here, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Again, the Lord made all of the other days, but this day in particular, he identifies as his day. And so we ask the question, what, first of all, what is the stone that the builders rejected, young people? What, what is David talking about here? What is that stone? Well, if you look at uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Peter tells us uh, when he's speaking to the Jews who crucified Jesus, uh, he, he identifies Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. So what is the stone that the builders rejected? It's Jesus, the one that they crucified. And on what what day did the Lord make Jesus, whom the builders rejected? On what day did he make him the chief cornerstone? of the temple that he is building. What day did he do that? He did it on the first day of the week when he raised Jesus from the dead and established him as the Lord of the church that he is building on the Lord's day. And about that day, Psalm 118.24 says, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So uh, we, we are to rejoice and to be glad, especially in the day upon which Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It, this is the new day of the Lord, or Lord's day. It's, it isn't any longer the day that, that God rested on the seventh day of creation. No, it is the first day of the week 
when the new creation began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that this change recognizes that we, for the Christian, the most important day is no longer the seventh day of the original creation, but the first day of the new creation. For we are his new creation if we are in Christ Jesus. The first day is now the Lord's day for his people to cease from their work and to gather to worship so that he can work in us. I know some will hear this argument that I'm laying out here. They'll hear it and they'll say, yeah, I, I, still, don't, I still don't think it, this is valid to say that the date has changed from the seventh to the first. And some will say, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, for example, will say, nothing less than a direct command from God will do. There's a direct command from God to, to rest on the seventh day. Nothing less than a direct command from God will do uh, to change the, the day of observing the Sabbath. And to that objection, I would ask one thing. If, if I could show you that one of the direct commands that the Lord made in the has been changed in the New Testament without a direct command from him, would you consider, consider all of the other evidence I've presented? Because I can show you that. And I th- think it's pretty persuasive. But, so we don't have a direct command from the Lord saying changing the day from the 7th to the 1st, but we have an Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 118. We have the direct evidence of Jesus and his apostles observing the first day of the week for rest and for a holy convocation with the people of God. But let's look, look with me uh, at Hebrews chapter 7. And I, I alluded to these verses last week. Um, in, in this section of Hebrews, the he's making the point that the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant it didn't make anything perfect. It didn't make worshipers perfect so that they could draw near to God into his holiest place. No, the Levitical priesthood made nothing perfect. And so this fact demonstrates, the author of Hebrews says here, demonstrates that there was a need for another priesthood to arise. And that priesthood and that priest is Jesus Christ. Okay? But there's a problem with that if you know your Old Testament. right? By a direct command from God, priests were to be from the tribe of Levi. right? Um, there were kings that, like Uzziah who was punished because the kings of Judah were from the tribe of Judah. And King Uzziah went into the temple and offered incense. And God struck him with leprosy so he could never enter the temple again. Why? Because by a direct command from the Lord, no, Le- no one other than a Levite was to be set apart for the priesthood. So if Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, he can't be a priest. But it says here that he is. We read there in verse 12 that the priesthood being changed... What's changed about it? It's no longer only a man from the tribe of Levi because this man, the true priest, the great high priest, is from the tribe of Judah. And you can ask the question, where is the direct command from the Lord telling us that the Old Testament law has been changed 
So now it's okay for us to acknowledge Jesus as, as our great high priest. Well, there isn't one. There is no direct command. That is why the author of Hebrews points out what he does here in verse 12. He says, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. So he's making observation. If the Lord has set up a new high priest who's not from the tribe of Levi, then it logically follows of necessity the law has been changed. It's not a direct command. It's an it's a It's a logical conclusion. It's an implication by good and necessary consequence of what God has done. And let me ask you, is that good enough for you? Is that good enough for you? It's good enough for me. But is it good enough for you? We see here the author of Hebrews says, it is good enough based on the fact that God made the change and in his mind the law has been changed and that is good enough for the church. We don't need a direct command. We don't need a command if, it, if this is the thing, if this is the work that God has done, we recognize the work and we embrace all of the implications of it. And that is what we must do when we see a Lord making changes. There's another example of this in the New Testament and that is the, the change of the sign. The sign, as Paul describes it in Romans 4.11, uh, the sign of circumcision, what is it called? It's the sign of the righteousness which comes through faith. And in the New Testament, the sign that is of the righteousness which comes through faith has been changed. It's no longer circumcision. It is baptism. And, but where is the direct command? We don't have a direct command. We have a prophecy in Ezekiel 36. If you want to look at this later, write it down. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26. And you will see there that the the Lord prophesied and and created this association between the cleansing of water and the, the cutting away of a heart. So baptism and circumcision are identified there as being one and the same thing. And Paul picks up on this in Colossians chapter 2, 11 and 12. And makes the same connection. Yet there is no direct command. But the implication that, from, that God forces us to embrace, that is good enough. Now, I, ha- I know the arguments that I have made in favor of the fourth command. That it won't convince everyone, right? I've already acknowledged that. Um, and it Maybe that some of you here, you're, you're eager to do what the scriptures teach. You just feel like you need more evidence. And I say to that, okay, I think the evidence is overwhelming, but fair enough. But there will be some who they see the argument that I'm laying out here, and they can see it's, oh, that's pretty compelling, yet nevertheless they will reject the conclusion. Why? Because they don't want it to be true. They don't want to observe a day of rest to the Lord. And the the last verse, I pointed out last week that in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus was, he went through some of the Ten Commandments and he he gave clear, more spiritual teaching on the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. Well, chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel ends at verse 48. And it says, there Jesus says, Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. But what if, the, let's pretend for a second, that there is a, a Matthew chapter 5, verse 49. And, it, and, it's, and there Jesus says, Remember the Sabbath day 
to keep it holy. How, how would you feel about that? If it was that clear, a direct command. And some Christians might say, well, that would really bother me. I, I, don't, I, don't, want to, I don't want to do it. And if that's the conclusion that you come to, I, I think that you need to, to see that you don't understand the purpose for which the Sabbath day was given, why it was made, because Jesus said the Sabbath was made for us. Doesn't that sound like a gift to you? The Sabbath was made for man. And our problem is that we're always trying to figure out uh, how, how much of the other six days of the week can I bring into the Lord's Day? When we should be thinking about how much of the Lord's Day can I bring into the rest of my week? We don't think about it that way. We're, when we finish our look next week at the fourth commandment, Lord willing, when we finish our look at it, we will see what the day is for, what this day is for. I haven't yet even told you that. I've only mentioned that it's rest, but, but I, I've also told you it's not lounging on a couch or sleeping all day long. No, it is, it's filled with activity. And we need to talk about that. What is it to be filled with? And when we see that, we'll see what, what God made it, it for, and you'll, you'll see that it is good. But for now, I, I, I want, you, want to call you to consider that the Lord's, what the Lord says about the Sabbath day that should make us long to enjoy all that the Lord has for us on this day. And, and it's the verses I reminded you of last week and, and showed to you earlier from Isaiah 58. And we need to take these verses to heart. Here in verse 13, the Lord says that his people should call the Sabbath day a delight. A delight. Something delightful. And we should ask the question, what's so delightful about it? And verse 14 indicates that it is a day of delighting ourselves in the Lord. It's a day of delighting ourselves in the Lord in a unique way that we can't delight ourselves in the Lord the other six days of the week. Why? Because we're busy with the work that we've been called to do. And so this is a, a delighting in the Lord that requires us to stop our work, to put our amusements aside so that we can delight, in our, delight ourselves in the Lord in the way that he wants us to be delighted in him. Now, each of us has a different calling in life, right? And your different calling, the work of your different calling is different than mine, right? But one thing all of our, uh, of our daily work has in common is that it is a source of frustration. It's a struggle. There's futility bound up in it. There's disappointment. There's failure. There's, there's fatigue that comes from that labor. And then there's the, the never-ending work around the house that nags us. Does anybody else have a list of things? They need to get done around the house that you, you either don't have the time or the energy or the money to take care of? Am I the only one? No, this is... Now, we had a clothes dryer that we bought brand new um, 
I don't know, probably been eight years ago. And we bought a brand new, and the heating element went out on that thing, I think, less than a year after we bought it. And so I figured out, how, you, how do you replace the heating element? I bought one. I'm like, okay, I, I can do this. But it required me to lay down on the ground in a really awkward position and stick my two hands in this little metal compartment and do work. And I needed a third hand in there, but I didn't have one and I couldn't fit it in there. And speaking of my hands, I remember cutting them up on the, the metal brackets of the housing. And it was an incredibly frustrating two hours. And I'll tell you what, that, that dryer, the heating element went out on it every five months. And I was dumb enough to keep fixing it and replace the heating element four times in that stupid thing before I finally called somebody to come haul it away. Now, we all have experiences in life like that. In fact, I think my dryer is a metaphor. It, it's an illustration of the toil of this life and what it is like. And how often don't we wish that we could just escape it, even if but for a little while, that we might get a little taste of paradise some way, somehow? And I don't doubt that all of us here as Christians recognize that the worship that we're enjoying right now, this fellowship, this gathering, it is a taste of that. It is that, it is, we get some of that rest and we enjoy it right here. I think our problem is, though, that we don't know how to delight ourselves in the Lord. We don't know how to, to enjoy the blessings of his kingdom after the benediction is over. That's where it all ends. After uh, we've chatted with the people around us for a little while, like a moth to a flame, we're drawn back to the very work that wears us out and frustrates us. Now, if we could see by faith, though, that there is so much more joy, so much more delight stored up for us on the Lord's Day, I think we wouldn't be so eager to go back to our work. I think we would be more zealous to protect the integrity of the, of the whole day and to suck the marrow out of it. And here is something else to consider. There's nothing toilsome, nothing discouraging or painful about the Lord or about his day, the day of the resurrection. It is, it's all delight. And if you do find this toilsome and painful, it's because you have so much of the world in your heart, that you don't have a taste for the good things of the Lord here. And you need the Lord to help you with that. Because the business of the Lord's Day is to receive the gifts and the graces that flow from Jesus Christ. It is to experience the blessings of the kingdom of God that we can only enjoy when we have set aside our customary work. And next week, I will tell you about those good things and, and the foretastes of paradise that are given to us here. And if we see what Jesus is giving to us, if we see those good things, I promise you, you will not ask. But do I have to? You won't ask that. You will say, I can't believe I get to. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen. Let's...
Our Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we uh, ask that you would uh, give us a, a holy love and desire for the things that you have revealed. And uh, Lord, where we have been challenged today, Father, may we, um, may we desire to uh, meditate upon and to ponder the things that we have heard, see if they are true, and then to measure ourselves by them. And Lord, let us uh, think about the things that we take delight in the most. Let, the, let us weigh them and see if they are worthy of our delight. Let us see if uh, we are missing out on the pleasures of your kingdom and the foretaste that we can receive of them today. And Lord, make us zealous to receive all of the blessing uh, that we possibly can from you in this as we walk out our uh, a life of labor and toil. Um, there's blessings in our work, Lord. We thank you for the blessings of work. Uh, Lord, it's not something we shrink back from, but oh, how we long uh, for the day when you will make all that is crooked straight again. And uh, we will enjoy rest uh, fully and finally. And we thank you for that day and for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to stand and sing number 448, um, Union with Thee. This is, uh, if, you have, if you're not familiar, if this hymn is not familiar to you, um, it's the same tune as Be Thou My Vision. And it's, it's a wonderfully rich hymn about our union with Jesus Christ by faith.
we're going to confess our faith using the Nicene Creed. Um, as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper, we often as a congregation will confess uh, a summary of Scripture or a passage of Scripture itself um, and remind ourselves that uh, our union, our fellowship, our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ um, is, is given and enhanced uh, through the things that God has revealed to us that we confess. So I ask you, Christian, what it is that you believe I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and descended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Now I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If these ancient creeds aren't familiar to you, you might be startled by the word Catholic there, and don't be. Um, The Roman Catholics stole that word. Um, You can't be Roman and Catholic at the same time. Because the word Catholic means according to the whole, right? And that's the way that we're to conceive of the church. Uh, The uh, early church fathers, going back to the time of the Apostle John at least, uh, when they thought of the church, they thought of the church as Catholic, uh, according to the whole. And it's to recognize that um, all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, all who are in union with him, they are in union with me too. Because there's only one body. And uh, we we give thanks and praise uh, for that fact. As we come to the Lord's Supper, uh, there is but one body. Uh, We are his mystical body, and we have no life from ourselves. We only have life because we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you come to the Lord's Supper this morning, I would urge you to come confessing what Jesus told us. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, I can do nothing. And how vitally important it is for you to have a real living union with Jesus Christ by faith in him. Seeing that his life is your life. And that's the very thing that is symbolized in the, in the body and blood, in the bread and the wine. Is that we take the life of Christ, which is outside of us, into us. Because it's only by his life that we live. And so, um, if you don't have that living vital life with Jesus Christ. Young people, if you, have not, if you are not looking to Jesus Christ for eternal life, you are like a branch that has been cut 
off from the tree and it's lying on the, the ground and it has no life in itself, it's going to wither and die. The only way to have life is to be united to Jesus Christ by faith and to confess that He alone is your life. And so um, we welcome all those uh, who are here this morning. If you're visiting with us and, um, and you're wondering if you should come to the Lord's Supper, we would welcome you if you have that living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have professed that faith, you've been baptized in obedience to Him and united yourself with the faithful Christian church, then we welcome you. Uh, if you haven't yet done that, then this supper is not yet for you, but it is uh, through it, the Lord Jesus. Hear him calling you to come to him um, and us uh, calling you too. That we would love to deepen our uh, friendship and fellowship with you uh, in this way. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask, O oh Lord, that you uh, d- would do great things uh, through this uh, this remembrance of the Lord Jesus and his life and death and the things that he has done for us. That it, may it be more than just a remembrance. May it be a, a living encounter with, with Jesus. May we hear his voice saying to us, apart from me, you can do nothing. And may we embrace that truth. May we embrace him and may our gratitude for him uh, be exponentially expanded and are in service to him empowered. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.